Welcome to the Cultural Connections podcast, where we take a deep dive into the place names and landscapes of South Wales. This podcast will be flexibly bilingual, so some will be in English, Abid Rai, and Cymraeg. In this episode, we're in Merthyr Vale. So, Harry, where is Merthyr Vale? Merthyr Vale, ne Anisowen and Cymraeg, ma. Mae Merthyr Vale yn gorwedd ar hyd yr A pedwar saith dim ac ar ochr dwreiniol yr afon taf, ac mae'r ardal yn diroddol, yn ddiaregol ac yn ddiwylliannol. Tim, it's also uh, Ynys Owen uh, and Merthyr Vale. Is that the same name in Welsh and English, or is it, are they completely different? They're completely different. The Merthyr Vale name uh, comes from the creation of a colliery uh, originally called the Taff Colliery, but renamed, uh, sunk in the late 1860s, 1870s, which was sunk on land that had originally been part of an Osoan farm. But I guess, you know, that period around the 1870s, this is the peak of people not wanting to use Welsh names. So it's given uh, an English name, a you know, constructed name, and... Uh, and so you have this duality that comes through with so many of these places with uh, traditional farm names. And so in itself can be traced all the way back to the 16th century as a name for those meadows. Uh, but once industry comes in, there's a layer of English naming being put over the top. Yeah, I think I, I know that um, that uh, Richard Morgan in his wonderful book uh, talks about the, the uh, uh, Merthyr Vale, you know, the uh, Dufferin Tav being uh, being a possible direct translation. But I think Tim is right. I think it, it's purely um, an English language construct, um, which represents the kind of mindset of the, uh, you know, of the day. You know, uh, uh, you know, industry was was the the future technology, and um, you know, it's a bit of a broad brush to say that anything Welsh was was um, was backwards. But there was there was a definite. Um, uh, uh, snobbishness, um, you know, that, that came with all of this uh, industry and, and name changing, as we've touched on, you know, with Traharis, um, Edwardsville, and the, those other names that we that we talked about in in other um, podcasts. Okay, so uh, well, a really good example of um, of that sort of abandoning of Welsh local Welsh names is Nixonville, which I think is to the south of uh, Merthyrvale. It's named after John Nixon, the the guy who founded uh, the Merthyrvale. Colliery, which is which is originally the Taff Colliery. Um, I I could also just to give some context on um, on the original uh, farm or small holding that was Ennis Owen. Um, in the 17th century, the river valley now occupied by Merthyr um, Vale. Um, it was heavily wooded, but it also contained many tithings. Uh, Tithin, you. Um, uh, tea here in a longhouse uh, translates to small holding and this sort of marks a period when small holdings like this one move from the uplands so higher up uh, the the river valley uh, down towards the lowlands and the reason for this um, was partly because believe it or not there was a little ice age during the during the um, the middle ages uh, particularly in 1650 it was, it was a very very cold period and um up high on the hills, it would have been very, very cold, but also very, very wet. So, um, uh, agric- small-scale ag- agriculture, this society has moved down towards the um, 
the sort of base of the valley. Um, if you live in the highlands, uh, you, you had no choice. You, you had to remain wet and cold. But but here, people had the option of moving down down the slope, basically, mm. and sort of seeking refuge there. So that's that's kind of like the beginnings of Merthyr Vale, really. And and also, if you look at the towns and villages um, in this whole area, they're all situated towards the bases of the of the river valleys here. And and you know, it could partly be this process can partly be dated back to this time the 17th century and we do see that like around the world the i see when i go to the to the alps a lot which obviously very different to um to wales but that looking out from certain mountains uh, in wales i look down to i'm currently in kafili and i look down towards here and it reminds me of of that idea of people like moving down into the valleys off the the uplands and and making those population centres. Uh, so, so you're saying, is that a time where everyone across the South Wales Valleys would have been doing the same thing? It, pro- it probably would have been quite a a slow process, I'd have thought. But it, there is definitely this this trend for um, for this overall trend for small holdings to be to be um, situated towards the base of the of the valley rather than the top. Sorry, that, and that's not to be confused with the, the industrialization of the uh, of the Taff Valley, which is, that's something completely different. You know, by 1801, Merthyr was one of the fastest growing towns in 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 the whole of the UK. So, um, so I think there's there's two very different things um, that, that 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 are happening there, and you do get this this massive surge of people when you when you get into the late 18th and early 19th century. Um, you know, into in, into the valley that bring in obviously new languages, new ideas. Uh, and new traditions as well. Must have been quite an exciting time. And Merthyr Vale then, and Merthyr Tidville, the, the town. What's the the link between those in terms of? Is there any link? Is it just the name Merthyr, Tim? Yeah, I think the name's just been applied down the valley. This is just you know, thinking of it in terms of the Merthyr Valley rather than the Taff Valley. So the Merthyr name is is being applied. Uh, slightly more broadly across the landscape. Um, Merthyr itself, the the origin of the name has been rather controversial over the years. Um, It's generally sort of understood that Tidville was a holy person after whom the church site was named. The Merthyr part of the name um, has been taken at some points in the past rather literally uh, to mean a site of a martyrdom so that the saint was killed. But it seems actually that that's quite uh, unlikely to be the origin of the name. And Merthyr names in Wales seem to arrive quite early on in the early Middle Ages uh, as a name for uh, a churchyard that commemorates or, or a site that commemorates a particular holy person, particularly perhaps if their relics were present on the site. So somebody called Tidville was probably buried at Merthyr Tidville. We don't really know for certain who Tidville was. Uh, There's even been some discussion as to whether Tidville was, was male or female. But certainly by the 10th century, it looks as if Tidville was being claimed as a daughter of the mythical King Brychan. Um, 
and appears on various family trees, family lists. Brichen was uh, is alleged to have been uh, the father of a rather remarkable family uh, of many dozens of children. And much of this is probably the political manoeuvrings. So the fact that Tidville was being claimed as the daughter of Brechen in the 10th century might mean that Tidville was indeed the daughter of Brechen or daughter of a king. Or it might simply be that the kingdom of Brechenog around Brechen was trying to establish some kind of claim over this daughter church in, in Merthyr and, and showing that that should uh, have them some allegiance. During the Middle Ages, um, interesting, the documents don't use the term Merthyr Tidville. Although the church is known to have been associated with Tidville from very early on, the doubling of the name as Merthyr Tidville is uh, not recorded in, in writing until the 16th century, which is quite interesting because that is exactly what people do today in common parlance people talk about going to Merthyr they don't tend to talk about going to Merthyr Tidville so that's that's quite interesting I think that the uh, the full name isn't necessarily used uh, throughout throughout history and then uh, by the sort of late 18th century then Tidville becomes associated with a period when people are trying to trying to establish a culture for South Wales and there are one or two characters involved who are very creative in doing that and most of the legends of Tidville are not documented before the late 18th early 19th century uh, so the whole martyrdom story the the, uh, the association of other members of the family with other localities in the Taff Valley is not documented before uh, the early 19th century and maybe a, a bit of a fiction really trying to create a, a history to make the area a little more interesting a little more engaged with its with its past so it's a tricky one really Merthyr there are layers of stories upon layers of stories and I think uh, that makes it even more interesting there's a story in the background which is which is fascinating and then there's the story about how the stories have evolved and what people wanted to believe, wanted to think about the area, which are, are equally important and equally interesting. I think uh, I think Tim comprehensively covered it. Then I think I think the uh, I think most of what we know or, or what we think we know come comes from the, the Middle Ages, the chroniclers from the Middle Ages, like uh, uh, William Worcester and John Leyland, who who were who were who wrote you know uh, uh, certain things. Um, about Tidville. I think um, Reese in a previous podcast mentioned um, the uh, uh, the lives of the, the Welsh saints. So there's all sorts of of these stories woven into the the, the the physical landscape. And I think when you get into the later sort of 19th century, it becomes very fashionable um, with Druidism. And and, uh, and as Tim said, you know, it, it becomes very fashionable to try and recapture that Celtic heritage, uh, you know, and uh, so I think we have to be, you know, very, very careful. Was there a, a, a King Brachen, um, you know, in the fifth century? Uh, who knows? There probably was, but it, there's, but was there also a, a King Arthur, you know, because there's, there's about as much chance of there being a King Arthur as there is a King Brachen. So, uh, so yeah, but, uh, but anyway, it leaves us with something to discuss on days like today, doesn't it? 
I think it raises a really interesting issue that when you're considering traditional names, and we like to use that word traditional as if it means something that stretches back into antiquity, we become reliant on what people tell us. People from the past have told us about what the oral history was, as opposed to the, the written documents. And we desperately want to believe them. We want somebody to be able to tell us what in the late medieval or early post-medieval period were the stories that people were telling. And our big problem with some of these is that the people who are telling us those stories are deeply unreliable and untrustworthy. And so we don't actually know whether, people, whether anybody else was telling these same stories or whether they were simply the creation of those, those individuals. And that's a, that's a fascinating challenge that it's almost impossible to work around, really. Let me let me posit something towards you then. Um, so looking forward, if you know, looking back, we rely on people to have written documentation of these place names and the the areas and what we called them. Looking forward to the future, is it going to be better or worse when it comes to digital technology for the the documentation of these place names? Are we no longer going to lose any place names? because the world is so documented right now? Depends Depends if Microsoft crashes in California, doesn't it? That's, uh, <laughs> you know, um, because the, the one thing about, um, which obviously Tim and Reese know, know all too well, the one thing about archaeological archives is that um, as soon as something becomes digital, the very means by which it is digital um, has a shelf life, you know, they're, they're, we went through, you know, 20 years ago, we were all putting stuff onto CDs uh, and DVDs. And now we realize that actually, you know, CDs and, uh, you know, we're putting archaeological, you know, we've gone, we've gone out, we've done excavations and we put all this information, and we back it all up to a CD. And now we realize that if you get one of those CDs now and try to access that information, more often than not, that, that information is degraded and you can't, you know, can't access it. So it's a really good question. I guess, you know, it, um, with the advent of the internet, it certainly is uh, more easy to access this kind of information. We talked about on other, in previous episodes about, you know, the National Library for Scotland, uh, for Wales, for Scotland, the National Library for Wales have, have digitized the tide maps. So for, uh, now we have uh, almost complete coverage of Wales from, from the 1840s and the 1850s. The National Library of Scotland have a full catalogue of the Ordnance uh, Survey uh, plans from so, so from really so, so the first edition in the 18 early 1800s right the way through until the 1940s and the 1950s. So so you know and we've got the uh, the um, the historical environment records which are easily accessible. So for the first time. You can sit back and you can sit in your armchair and you have at your fingertips all of these a myriad of, of resources. Uh, however, you know, the, the data behind all of these, these resources, uh, I think, you know, remains a, uh, how, we, how we safeguard that data for the future remains a constant worry um, and is, you know, constantly talked about as well. As we digitize things now, um, as soon as it is put into the digital record, that becomes the the thing that it is and it becomes fossilized in that way and i wonder if you know if it was a, a tenuous um story and then gets put into to digital format ev that becomes the thing that everyone says that it is if that makes sense
Well, you've only uh, Anis Owen being the, the story behind one story on on Wikipedia is that Anis Owen has uh, got its name because the uh, supporters of uh, Owain Glyndor uh, came from this area, which is you know utter nonsense. Or, or you know, it's very, very, very. It'd be almost impossible to prove. So, so yeah. So I think yeah, you've you've got to be very, very careful just because it's written. And the other thing I mentioned, you know, we've used a variety of tools for this project. You know, dictionaries and very old dictionaries, and um, and uh, with for the place name evidence. But you know, Google also um, has a, a translate um, uh, system now, where you can translate Welsh to English, uh, Latin, and um, lots of different languages. But but it's um, but it's not always right. Um, and, um, and 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 if you don't know that it's not always right, you, you would just you can accept it on face value, and you would never ever challenge it. Which is going back to what you you said a moment ago. So I think yeah, it is it is very very dangerous. I think you know as archaeologists, we're taught from 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 the start to constantly challenge and reevaluate. You know the the uh, 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 you know what we're told or what we learn. And um, and I think you know once things become fossilized digitally, it becomes harder and harder to to do that so yeah i guess it's a bit of a a bit of a balancing act between access to all of these wonderful archives and then um you know uh, making sure you have the ability to constantly challenge that data i think there's also an interesting thing here where going back to the very starting point of these podcasts and we were talking about the renaming of places as part of outdoor activities and what happens to those names might not people in the future actually be interested in those? What were people on their mountain bikes calling this? And how does that informal information enter the sort of long-term record? You know, the things that Richard's been talking about mostly, not entirely, but mostly are quite kind of formal official materials. And then there's a, a kind of secondary amount of information that people put out there that is of as Richard was just saying, potentially lower quality, may be quite difficult to tell about. But, but what about the other sort of informal information, the, the renaming of these places? It's probably never going to appear on a formal published map anywhere. Just to give you a, a good example of, of that, over the last year, when whilst out mountain biking um, on the local mountain, we've got a, a load of wonderful uh, mountain bike routes that that people create and then they digitize them, they put them into a, an app. Um, and just over the last year, I noticed a, a couple of new ones pop up because people were needed to stay local. So they would go out onto the mountain and there's literally one now called Quarantine, uh, a new mountain bike route. Uh, there's one called COVID-19. So they, they really, uh, and, and that's like taking the actual, it's not, not even then is, that it's not a, an official name it's like a very specific time-oriented name as well yeah and and presumably some of the historic names that we're talking about had similar origins some of these uh, situations that gave rise to these names are very short-lived i mean who knows how long owen owned the meadow at uh you know, it might have only been for a couple of years, but he happened to have got his name written down and it was recorded in an official rental while he did, and that name stuck. But it, it too is a very transient thing. There's no particular reason why his name should be attached to it rather than his father's or his or his offspring's. It happened to be him. And that's it is interesting how these names come up 
uh, in an almost random way, I think, at times. Um, yeah, I think we should probably draw a distinction between um, what, what, what's common parlance and what's like um, archival information. I mean, there, there's obviously going to be a disconnect between those two. Um, what, what's in common parlance isn't necessarily going to be um, informed by archival information. It's, it, and it's just, um, I think that the latter is more informed by just very simple descriptions of places or events that happen at places and like like you and tim were saying they're very sort of transient um if that makes sense but they're no less valid are they as, as tim said they're, they're no they, these names are no less valid uh, as as place names and and you know maybe you know maybe one of the outcomes of this project will be that the that you know the the um covid19 downhill track and um and the bumpy corner, or I think well, was another one. You know, you know these these names on Strava and other other apps will, uh, you know, we, we can at least make a record of them, and uh, you know, and so in a hundred years' time, somebody will be interested. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think in, in some ways um, the um, the sort of more informal place names are, are sort of more important because this is what it's what the local community usually refers to the, these places as. Yeah, I mean, I've got um, one of the places I love to go to in the US when visiting my relatives is Chimney Rock. And, um, you know, I I went out there at something like 10, 11 o'clock at night, got a a wonderful picture of the Milky Way rising out of Chimney Rock. But the history there um, is that it was part of the Oregon Trail. And it was the the marker that said that you've you've crossed the boundary from the the Rocky Mountains and from the the treacherous kind of uplands of the of the Rockies uh, into a, a onto a new part. And it's it's going to get easier from here on on in, um, and that name has kind of stuck around the, the the Chimney Rock name, and it was something that 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 signified a lot. It wasn't just that it looks a bit like a chimney. <laughs> that it had all this extra story, all this extra reverence and hope around it as well. And, you know, I think we, we have a lot of that in Wales too. I wonder looking at some of the, some of the place names around uh, Merthyr Vale, uh, like uh, uh, we touched on it earlier, Taran or Gigvran, um, you know, whether, whether or not that, that was, uh, you know, the, the Hillock of the Ravens or whether that was a, a discrete landscape feature that happened to look like a raven, but you could imagine, you know, where, um, you know, uh, somebody named, you know, a farmer or, or somebody who lived there, you know, colloquially they all they all called that the Raven's Rock or whatever, you know, and that name is is stuck. And when the OS workers went up there and asked, you know, what that what that <laughs> what's that bit up there called? Oh, that's you know Raven's Rock, and and off they wrote it down, and you know. Um, so I think there's quite a few examples of that, you know, in, in um, uh, not just this valley. I mean, across the the whole of Wales, and it, and also some of the, you get you get uh, spelling mistakes as well, where you get the, the quite often where you get an English speaking um, cartographer writing down phonetically what uh, what what uh, you know spoken Welsh, um, because I sh- I would have imagined that that you know in the early 19th century that not not everybody was um was fully literate you know for example uh, yeah a really good example of that it's not in this particular word but um bargoid bar the, the word bargoid comes from bargod which means um border and is a border between um i think well two counties in that area anyway and and um that transformed into bargoid and uh like goid and metal coidenveld or tree um 
So it's quite interesting how just through maybe misinterpreting a certain name or like mispronouncing it even, the, the whole meaning of, of, the, of the name completely changes. Like originally the term tree, koiden, had nothing to do with it, but then all of a sudden it, it's like, it's what people think of when, when they, when Welsh, Welsh people, uh, speaking people think of when they hear bargoid. Uh, just, just so that you guys know, I've been looking up. Um, the, you can do an MSc in digital archaeology up at the uh, University of York. I might, I might, uh, I might, I might jump on that one. So it it comes back to this is a really nice way of kind of getting to the end of, and we got one more podcast to do, but it's a really nice way of of wrapping up all this. Is how do we think of place names? Because on the one one side of the debate we're saying that they are transient they will change and that's okay that's a a thing that happens naturally within languages and within places and then on the other side we're saying we need to archive these and make sure that people know what they were where they come from and i suppose like a lot of things we can hold those two truths in our mind at the same time right that we can archive these and and say that they we should you know, call Welsh place names more kind of um, in the Welsh language and call them what they were, but also it's okay to, for them to have those transient languages too. Yes, I think that's true. And I think that's also true of the stories that people are telling about those places. Those stories are equally uh, both transient and worthy of preservation. So it's not just the place names themselves. And they, they tell a story. I mean, in, in, uh, in 500 or a thousand years time, you know, will, uh, will there be a group of people sat down chatting as we are today? You know, if you, if you think about um, West Wales and, and Little England and the Flemish influence, the normal inf- influence in Pembrokeshire uh, on the language and the place names, you know, will people in, in 500 years be talking about um, the, how the place names changed in, in, in Merthyr and in, in the South Wales Valleys more generally because of industrialization um, and all those other pressures that come with it. And alongside those sort of discussions about transients, we have some of the names here which are amongst the, the very oldest. We've got the Taff River going through, which it seems likely you can trace that name, albeit in a rather different form, but it probably goes all the way back to the pre-Roman period. And that name has stuck. So there are certain features of the landscape which are so permanent that they give those names that are long lived, long survived. And then we have those events coming in that are more transient. We have the creation of places like NSON because the coal mining shifted south in the 1860s you need new places for people to live, so you give them new names. And that's that's an interesting story about how different timescales are operating in the same place. Yeah, I think one of the things that I personally would, would love to see is, you know, when, when we create these new place names and when we create these new areas, is just that more local aspect to it. So, you know, can we use Welsh language? Can we use things that are historically local to that area um and you using the word that i i hate to use but that that traditional um those traditional names that are, that are from that area i really i feel like i'm i'm more confused now as to what I, as to should we name places 
locally to to what I was at the start of all these podcasts. But that's a good thing. I, I'm happy about that because it's it's a debate that doesn't really have a a really simple answer, and that's having these discussions really helps with that. Yeah, and I think this this whole access, improved access to old names, is really helpful. And Richard was talking uh, earlier about the tithe maps, and not every field has a proper name on the tithe map, but many of them do. So if you're building a new house and it sits in one of those fields, well, why not reuse one of those old names and perpetuate it? It's much more interesting. Of course, you know, dozens and dozens of those, or probably hundreds of those fields are called the four and a half acres or in either English or Welsh. But you know, some of them have names that are more interesting. And it would be great to see those being used rather than these generic, modern, invented names. Yeah, there's... Yeah, and there's there's more meaning to those names as well. They're not just arbitrary. They they they're tied to the history of that place. And it's, I suppose that is that's a really good point to end on. Is that you know even the the downhill mountain bike track of quarantine is not arbitrary. That it does have a story to it, and it, it is. And I suppose that's something we can delineate between the two. Is that you know on a lot of places it'll be. Um, it will be arbitrary and linked to absolutely nothing. But if it has a story behind it, then that's something I think we should preserve. Yes. And I think even, in a sense, even the arbitrary names have a story behind them. That story might be corporate and boring, but there's a story there. And it's always interesting to know why. For sure, for sure. All right, gents, thank you so much uh, for that really interesting conversation. And I feel like this one was more of that conversation and then we've had in, in other podcasts of where I've just been really eager just to listen to your thoughts on this kind of thing because it's quite a quite a thoughtful debate to have so thank you so much Jochen Wald I'll see you in the next episode The Cultural Connections Project is part of the Wales Rural Development Plan 2014 to 2020 which is funded by the European Union Fund for Rural Development and the Welsh Government it is being commissioned by Merthyr Tydfil Canterbury Council, delivered by TACP UK Limited, Black Mountains Archaeology, GeoArch and Hugh James Media. My cousin is Diwylliannol and Rhano Gynllun Dablygu Gwledig Cymru 2014 Merthyr Tidville a chynnwrchwyd gan TACP, Black Mountains Archaeology, Geoarch a Hugh James Media.